There are always events in American history called benchmarks, and the country, the society, has never been the same since. And people speak of assassinations of presidents changing the nature of a society. Perhaps there's one event as far as labor history of this country is concerned, or history of dissent. It's the Haymarket tragedy. That's the name of the book by Paul Average, who's distinguished professor of history at Queens College in New York and teaches at the graduate school at the City College of New York. And this is his masterwork. Princeton University Press put it out. The Haymarket tragedy. What happened here in Chicago almost 100 years ago? It was a May day, a, May, a day in May, not May day. Yes. We'll talk about that, too. Mm -hmm. 1886. And I thought, Professor Average, I thought the way to introduce it would be with a song. It was about something, all the fight then. Most was about the eight-hour day, the battle for the eight-hour day. And I suppose we hear Pete Seeger and the eight-hour day, and it sets, it'll set the theme. It's funny, those lyrics really set the pattern for that moment in history, don't they? Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, uh, the Haymarket Affair itself was intimately bound up with the movement for the eight-hour day. And one of the reasons it is a major event in American history, as you already pointed out, is that it is linked with the eight-hour day movement and also with May Day, the first of May, which is the international working men's and women's holiday. So the first of May was really established by events in Chicago, in this city. That's correct. Uh, in May of, of 1886, on May 1st, uh, among the first of the mass demonstrations and marches took place right here in Chicago, where tens of thousands of working men and working women walked down through what is now the loop area of the city led by Albert Parsons and his wife, Lucy Parsons. And, of course, Albert Parsons was one of the men hanged, one of the anarchists hanged as a result of something that happened at Haymarket Square. It's an area now, Union Square in Chicago. Yes, that's where right. Where a statue of a policeman, uh, one of those who uh, was killed when that's, the bomb was thrown. Yes, that's right. Was knocked off by the weatherman. Yeah, you, yes, you know about that. And then it was replaced. Uh, yeah, what happened in, was in, that... Uh, to honor the policeman who broke up a meeting of anarchists and other workmen in the Haymarket Square, or just off the Haymarket Square on Des Plaines Street, uh, the city built a statue. And it stood in Haymarket yeah. Square for quite a number of years, in, until 1969, actually, when the Weather Underground, yeah. which was the radical... And now, main, it, now it's a, it, it, the statue is one of the police stations. That's right, town. yeah. The Weather underground, blew it up in 1969. Well, we to go back to the beginning. This yeah. is a, a book that is a definitive book. On the, We have a good number of, of Haymarket historians around Chicago, Bill Edelman for one. That's honest. right. But this is a book that starts at the very beginning. You've got to set the scene. Chicago, mm -hmm. the United States, 1886, the immigrants. Why don't you set the scene and mm. labor and management, labor and bosses? Well, this was a period in American history of the rapid development of capitalism and industry, and Chicago was burgeoning as one of the major centers of factory system and of commerce. And into the city during the 1880s was pouring large numbers of not only immigrants from Europe, but also farmers who were in search of jobs in these new factories. So the population of Chicago was swelling very rapidly. It was also, however, a period of depression. There was a Great Depression in the 1870s, known as the Panic of 1873, and it was followed by another depression in the 1880s, from 1883 to 1886, so that the Haymarket incident took place right in the midst of a depression. 
This was also a period which is notorious for the conditions of labor, that is, conditions in these new factories. There are no safety devices on the machinery. The hours of labor were 10 to 12 a day, six days a week. Child labor was still quite common in many of the factories. So this is a, the, the height of what we think of as, as the era of robber baron capitalism and a period in which there were widespread slums in Chicago and poverty throughout the nation, but particularly in cities like Chicago. We have to remember one more thing about Chicago. Chicago was also a frontier town in 1880s. It was not the Chicago of today, although even now it, I guess, it retained some elements of the, the Old West. So that you had a, a rough and ready tradition of gunslinging and brass knuckles and police violence in Chicago in the 1880s, which continues. And of course, continues. big industry. We had yes. heavy industry. That's right. So steel was now manual. So skyscrapers came out of Chicago. That's true. And of course, the big railroad strike of 1877. Yes. Railroads and, and farm equipment. And now right. we come to McCormick Works. Yes. And in the middle of all this were immigrants, some of whom were self-educated, some great many from Germany. Because mm -hmm. when Chicago had, these were the children of the 1848, failed 48ers revolution yes. in Germany, aren't they? That's true. There was a very large German population in Chicago in the 1870s and 1880s, some of them dating back to the 48ers who had fled after the revolution of 1848. But most of them had come in the 1870s and the early 1880s, and they were new arrivals, and they lived in the worst conditions imaginable. And they were the ones who were hired and working in these new factories, these large factories like the McCormick factory. So as the came in their spokesman, and now they had spoken, the, the, anarch, the movement called anarchism was still burgeoning anew. There, there was indigenous socialism, at yes, least there attempts, was. weren't there? Yeah, there's a myth that socialism is an import from Europe and that America would have nothing to do with a movement which preaches violence and uh, revolution. The fact is that although there were many immigrants among the anarchists, there were also many native-born Americans among them, and America itself has a very long tradition of suspicion of strong government and concentrated authority. Albert Parsons, one of the men that you mentioned before who, who were hanged, four of them were hanged in 1887, uh, was of Puritan roots whose ancestors came over on the Mayflower on its second voyage, whose father was born in Portland, Maine, who himself was born in Montgomery, Alabama, and fought in the Confederacy yeah. in Texas. And his brother became a general. Yes, his brother. General. That's right. His brother was a general, actually, and then later on a well-known well figure and in we'll American history. We'll come to Parsons and his colleagues, All right. uh, some of whom were hanged, some imprisoned, one killed himself, and some three pardoned Yes. by another man of German descent, perhaps the greatest governor any state ever had, John yes. Peter Altgeld. Yes, that's right. To his great credit and... Uh, it took but a great before that, we're setting, the, we're setting the scene, the time, mm -hmm. the press, the role of the press, the role of the newspapers. It's hard to imagine now there are two major newspapers in Chicago, a period when there were a dozen daily newspapers and several labor and radical papers in Chicago, a number of them in German, the Arbeiter Zeitung, the workers' paper, which was an anarchist and left-wing socialist paper, and the Alarm, which was an anarchist newspaper edited by Albert Parsons. What was the answer of the... Of the press, the, the, the mass-read press, the, the metropolitan press. Well, the, the daily press was, as you can imagine, extremely bitterly hostile towards all radicals and especially towards anarchists. They equated anarchism with terrorism, terrorism with bomb-throwing. So the anarchists got a very, very bad press, and, and when these men were arrested, uh, you can imagine the fury with which the press greeted them and denounced them and called for their hanging. We're going to have to read some of the stuff as it goes along. Well, perhaps even now... We, uh, the press itself, uh, page 219, 
We're talking about all kinds of papers, the early Trib, the Chicago Times, the Mail. They spoke of scum and offal yes. of the old world. So yes. it was anti-foreign. Yes, that's right. Human, inhuman rubbish. Mm-hmm. This was the Chicago Times. And rag, tag, and bobtail cutthroats of Beelzebub <laughs> from the Rhine, the Danube, the Vistula, and the Elba. <laughs> Off-scourings of Europe. And uh, this was pretty much the nature of reportage at the time. Yes, not only did the press denounce radicals, but they tended to equate radicalism not only with terrorism, but with immigration. This was a wave of nativism, which is very intense and which was experienced again during the Red Scare following the First World War. Uh, foreigners, particularly Germans, who were pouring in in great numbers, yeah, were I mean, an object this, of this fear. This led to the Red Scare, yes. one of yes. the things. One it of the did, of yeah, that's true. Let's go back to the be- So now we're setting a certain moment, for right. a moment. Something is happening, obviously. Uh, there are organizations, there are attempts at socialist parties, anarchists are more direct action mm-hmm. inclined. And you got big industry, you got George Pullman. Yes. You got Marshall Field, the merchant prince. Right. And you've got the meat packers, you got armor. And so the issue is joined. Yes, just as the, uh, the daily press denounced the radicals and the workers and the immigrants. The radicals in their newspapers denounced people yeah. like Armour and uh, George Pullman and Marshall Field as the epitome of robber baron capitalism, rapacious so capitalism. What happened at McCormick Reaper plant? Well, everybody was worried that on May 1st, which was this big 1st of May, eight-hour demonstration in Chicago. 1886. 1886, that there would be some sort of incident or explosion. Actually, nothing happened on May 1st. It was a, a large demonstration. It was a kind of festive, merry occasion. But two days later, there was an incident at the McCormick Reaper Works, which later became the International Harvester Company, uh, on Blue Island Avenue in the southern part of Chicago, where the company, led by Cyrus McCormick Jr., were trying to get rid of the existing workers and to hire uh, ill-paid scabs, newly, newly arrived immigrants, so that there was a picket line set up to block the scabs from leaving the factory. Uh, the police were called. The police fired into the crowd, killing at least two of the workers and injuring, wounding several others. One of the men who happened to witness the scene was the editor of the Arbeiter Zeitung, an anarchist German newspaper. His name was August Spies. Spies was so indignant at what he saw, that is, the shooting down of unarmed men, women, and even a few boys, teenage boys, that he rushed back to the office of his newspaper and drafted a circular. It's known as the revenge circular, although he didn't use the word revenge. It was this became a subject of much controversy, and, and also yes. even history, to some extent, cloaks it in mystery. That's the right. Circulars, the, the circular. The circular. He called for reprisals and uh, that the workers shouldn't permit that they and their families should be shot down like, like dogs in the future. Uh, a typesetter at his newspaper entitled this leaflet, Revenge, Rache in German, Revenge in English, and it was circulated in that form. And the next day, uh, a meeting was called for in the Haymarket Square to protest police brutality. Uh, the revenge circuit, circular had already been distributed. And now an announcement of the meeting was also distributed. Some of the copies of this announcement told the workers to bring arms. Working men, arm yourselves and come with your arms. When Spies saw this in this circular announcing the meeting at the Haymarket Square, he immediately called back all the circulars. He, wa- he didn't want violence. He wasn't even preaching violence. Uh, He wanted the workers to be prepared against any future incidents of this sort, but he wasn't calling for any attacks upon the police or upon anybody else. In any case, there was this protest meeting, 
several thousand workers and their families assembled off the Haymarket Square on, on Desplaines Street and heard a series of speeches. August Spies, the editor of the Arbeiter Zeitung. We're talking about May 3rd. This is now May 4th. May 4th. The evening 18. of May 4th, about 7.30 or 8 o'clock, we have this mass meeting to protest the police brutality the previous day exhibited at the McCormick Works where these two workers were shot by the police and killed. Spies delivered a speech. He was followed by Albert Parsons, another anarchist of old American lineage, and the editor of the English-language anarchist newspaper in Chicago called the alarm, followed by the third and last speaker who was named Samuel Fielden, an Englishman from Lancashire and who worked in the mills that Marx and Engels wrote about in the 1830s as a these child. These are three of they became three of the eight defendants. Yes, they did. Uh, they were three of the most powerful radical orators in Chicago, and they were the ones who were arrested after a bomb was the thrown. The other five of the defendants were one way or another indirectly involved with the meeting. Yes, uh, well, some of them were not, even at the meeting. They, they, were, they were all anarchists. Uh, who were the others? Now, there was That's Oscar Niebe. Yes, Oscar Niebe, whose uh, family still lives I in Chicago. I assume you saw his grandson, yes. Bill Niebe. That's right. Chicago. He works here as a designer, a book designer, very, very fine man. Uh, the others included uh, Louis Ling, who was a 21-year-old carpenter, newly arrived from Germany. Uh, they, they also included Adolf Fischer, a 28-year-old printer who worked for a German newspaper, and George Engel, who was the oldest of the eight. Chicago they were called the Chicago Eight, by the yeah, way, just as they would funny. be yeah, later yeah. on in history. George Engel was a man of about 50, and he, he owned a little toy store. He had previously done all kinds of and jobs. And of the eight, there were also different degrees of fervor. They all were fervent. Yes, that's right. Fervently anarchist yeah. wanted to change the system, worked for the eight-hour day. That's but right. But there different degrees. That's correct. The Ling was known as the bomb maker, for example. Ling did believe in bombs. He did, yeah. Yes, he did. He, he actually practiced, didn't practice, but preached the cult of dynamite. He, he made a number of bombs which were brought to the trial as exhibitions. There was no evidence that they were the bombs uh, that the bomb thrower threw. And then Engel and Fisher were also extreme anarchist militants who, who felt that the only way to rid the country of coercion, of capitalism and government, was through a revolution. The others were much milder types. Parsons and Spies were a more, more gentler, actually, a more gentle, rather, variety of the anarchists. But now comes that meeting, uh, that yes. gathering, and it's near the end. The third speaker, That's the right. last speaker, yes. is... Englishman. Oh, the, it was in three languages, wasn't it? Yes. Ac well, actually, Spies was supposed to speak in German, but as it turned out, he spoke in English. It was supposed to have been in German and English. That was the traditional way. And, and sometimes also Czech and Polish. Czech even. and Polish. And even uh, some of the Scandinavian languages, because the heavily immigra immigrant population among these anarchists. But as it turned out, the three speeches were all in English. Uh, the mayor attended. Mayor the, Carter Harrison. Yes. Who was not unsympathetic. To, to the people. He, he was a fair-minded guy. He had heart, yeah. and he cared about the conditions of labor and the conditions in the slums, yes. Uh, and he and said, don't worry about this meeting. He was there, he said, it's gonna, be, it's, go, it's gonna be okay. That's right, he went up to the inspector in charge. There was a police contingent a half a block away, led by a particularly sadistic policeman named John Blackjack Bonfield, Inspector Bonfield. Uh, Mayor Harrison said, Inspector, this is a peaceful meeting. Clearly nothing's going to happen. You could send your men home. And Bonfield said, all right, we'll do that. The mayor went back to his home and got undressed, started going to bed. Bonfield ordered the 180 policemen to march on the meeting and disperse it. Even though the meeting was about to break up. Yeah, it was 10 o'clock at rain, night. Like, yeah, it was threatening brave. to rain. And there were right. stragglers in the crowd, all were yeah, left. Yes, there were about 300 out of 3,000 people were left. All the women were gone. 
All the children were gone. Bonfield once said, if I could only get these anarchists without their women folk and children around, I'll teach them a lesson. So when the mayor had gone and the bulk of the crowd, leaving just a handful or a crowd of a couple of hundred workmen, he ordered his police onto the square. Okay, one question. This yeah. comes up in your book. Mm -hmm. Why did Bonfield do that? Was it simply that? Or was it the fact that the merchant princess in town, the big industrious, I'm thinking specifically of Pullman and Marshall mm -hmm. Field, yes. uh, said you got to stop these guys? That is one of the theories. There's no doubt that Bonfield was doing the bidding in general of the industrialist and financial element in Chicago. There is no evidence, however, that on this occasion there was any conspiracy to incite Bonfield to lead his men onto this meeting. It seems to me that the evidence we do have tends to show that he, he saw his chance to get these anarchists and to get rid of the leaders. They were all there, or some of them were there at any rate, and to drive them out of the city and to have them arrested. And he I took talk, his chance. I'm talking to Paul Average, and we're, we're just getting into it, a historical moment that really altered the nature of American labor history, certainly. And uh, the book is The Haymarket Tragedies, the definitive book on the subject. And after this message, we'll resume with what happened at that moment and then the aftermath, the trial, the uh, national temper, and epilogue after this. Resuming with Paul Average, a teacher of history at Queens College, New York, and graduate school at City College of New York and Haymarket. So now Bonfield has come with the police. Yes. <clears throat> Lorraine's coming out. The, the meeting's about to mm -hmm. end. Yes. The Haymarket meeting of the anarchist yes. speakers and uh, the um, strikers and a whole group of people. That's right. The police marched up to the meeting, led by Captain Ward, Inspector Bonfield. Ward said, I command you in the name of the people of Illinois to disperse. This is what is on the statue by the police statue. And Samuel Field, who was just about to finish, and this relatively small group of people who were going to go home anyway, and it was threatening rain, wondering why would the police march in at this moment. And Field said, well, I'm just finishing up. And Ward said, repeated, I command you, etc." And Field said, all right, we'll go. And he stepped down from the wagon. There was a wagon on which he was standing giving a speech. And just as his foot touched the ground, someone threw a bomb, which landed smack in the midst of the police. One policeman fell wounded. He was ultimately uh, to die from these wounds, Patrolman Dagan. A number of others were wounded by the bomb fragments. By the way, I, these bomb fragments survive in New York in the possession of an autograph and rare book dealer named H.P. Krauss, and it was a very eerie feeling when I opened an envelope hmm. and the papers of the prosecutor of the case to feel these particular fragments. The police opened fire. They fired in panic. They fired wildly. They fired into the ranks of their own men so that the casualties on the Haymarket Square were largely inflicted by the police themselves against their own policemen and against civilians. There were now, about 67 casualties now, among the police. Now, we, this is going to come again and yeah. again in, yeah. in your book. It occurs. Mm -hmm. No one knows who threw the bomb or why. Well, there are a number of theories. No one knows. To this day, the bomb thrower remains anonymous. We do not know his name. We do not know who threw the bomb. There, the theories are numerous. Some believe that it was an anarchist uh, who was who read the leaflet to come armed and to get revenge. He read the revenge circular, read the, the leaflet announcing the meeting. He saw his chance and he threw it. Just as Bonfield saw his chance to get the anarchists out of the way and took it, I feel the same thing happened. This man with the bomb saw his chance to get at the police. Another theory is it was a disgruntled worker, not necessarily an anarchist, who had been beaten by the police, a very common occurrence. 
in those days. But now something happened. Now yeah. comes the hysteria. Yes, yeah, there was a terrible hysteria. I, I call it the first modern Red Scare in American history. That is, before the Red Scare of A. Mitchell Palmer following the First World War, before the McCarthy Red Scare following the Second World War, there was a Red Scare in Chicago in 1886 and 1887. The police descended upon all the known haunts of the anarchists, their clubs, their saloons, their private homes, without search warrants, without arrest warrants in many cases, and arrested about 500 radicals, socialists, and anarchists uh, trying to cleanse the city of this radical element, and their particular target were the anarchists. Uh, they tended to blame most of the trouble on the anarchists, and they said that an anarchist had thrown the bomb, although they had no proof to that effect at all. And so eight, oh, the paper, just a, a bit out of the Chicago Times, public justice demands that the European assassins, and names them, the speakers, that is. Yes. Not the bomb through the no, name of no. the speakers. Mm -hmm. August Spies, Michael Schwab, Sam Fielden shall be tried and hanged for murder. Yes. Public justice demands the assassin, Albert Parsons, A.R. Parsons, who is said to disgrace this country for having been born in it, shall be seized, tried, and hanged for murder. Public justice demands the Negro woman who passes the wife of the assassin Parsons, this is Lucy Parsons shall be seized, tried, and hanged for murder. One hanged Lucy, too. Yes, they did. And it goes on, and no gathering of these criminal conspirators, public enemies, shall hereafter be permitted in Chicago. And this is one of the milder uh, comments, uh, editorials, yeah. that you have. you have. You have news in this form, too. That's and so true. The, so the public is really... Worked up into a lather. Yeah. In fact, you even had cartoons with nooses waiting for these men. Uh, there were calls in the press to to get right at it and to forget about a trial. Let's hang these men. They're palpably guilty. There was a lynch spirit in Chicago during this period, as a matter of fact. And now this is, now there's a trial. There's a trial. Of the eight men who were considered what the instigators. Yes. Because they couldn't charge them actually throwing the bomb. This was one unknown person. Uh, they charged them with being accessories, with inciting the bomb thrower, with conspiring with the bomb thrower to commit murder against the police of Chicago. So, so they were tried yeah. by a, a hanging judge. Uh, judge yeah, I don't like to speak... His name was Judge Gary. Yes, Joseph Easton Gary was his name, an elderly judge who had a reputation of uh, being a decent judge, although not the best judge in Chicago in those days. I, I hesitate to speak in terms of good, the good guys and the bad guys, but there were some bad guys in this story, in this drama, and Judge Gary was a hanging judge. Uh, he was prejudiced against these defendants from the very start. He appointed a special bailiff who packed the jury. There were no immigrants on the jury. There were no working people on the jury. There was only one man, actually, an immigrant from Scotland who came as a young man. There were no Germans on the jury. Uh, most of the members of the jury were small businessmen or employees for Marsh Marshall Field and employees for, for the other large corporations in Chicago at that time. And so there was no way of... Uh, in fact, they admitted some of the prospective jurors Admitted to prejudice. That's admitted right. Admitted to hating these guys. Yes, and... And, uh, and uh, they, they were allowed to... They were allowed to sit on the jury. Gary talked to them and wheedled them and to say that, well, even if I am prejudiced, I think I could render a fair verdict if all the evidence is shown to me. Uh, so that he actually made sure that these men would be convicted, in effect. And at this time, the Chicago business community, headed by Marshall Field, Marshall Field I, yes. Philip D. Armour and George Pullman, met in secret, subscribed more $100,000 to stamp out anarchy and sedition. 
That's true. Although, as I say, there's no evidence that the businessmen had incited Bonfield to march on this meeting. There is clear evidence that the same businessmen gave large quantities of money to the police to stamp out anarchism in the wake of the bomb throw. Now, Judge Gary also had friends of his society, women. Yeah. Well, this is very reminiscent of a, of a trial years later, the Chicago right? 8 trial here, in which a judge had oh, yes. a women of the near north side sit there, too. Did he it really? Was I had thing. no idea. The parallel's marvelous. And uh, one spot... One of the, the judge says to one of the defense lawyers, in your book, or someone said, don't make a scene. <laughs> Those are exactly the words. I only have the words used the by judge a Hoffman? subsequent judge here. Is, is that right? I, oh, <laughs> well, whoever Parallel yeah, remarkable. Right. Yeah. The results were not, unfortunately, no not yeah. that horrendous. So we come to the trial, the climate, and we come to a, law, a certain a remarkable man named a, world, a Civil War hero, who became the lawyer for the defendants, Captain Black. Yes, William Perkins Black, who was a corporation lawyer in Chicago. He had very little or no experience with criminal law at all, but they needed a lawyer. And his wife said, but you'll, your whole career will be ruined. You'll lose everything. You've built up a very fine practice. And he said, I have to do what's right. And he defended these men very ably. Uh, he was eloquent, and he looked the part of a Civil War hero, and he did a good job with his other, with his fellow lawyers. Going to Captain Black yes. won the Congressional Medal of Honor That's in the Civil right. War, a hero, a hero, decorated many. Mm -hmm. Also a very respected corporation lawyer That's and right. associate with the best, quote-unquote, people in town. Yeah, some of whom abandoned him immediately now, after what happened? the trial. His, well, his career was destroyed. His career was largely destroyed. It took him 15 years to rebuild his practice. He never rebuilt it to the point where it had been just before the trial of the Haymarket Anarchist. But he said, I've got it, yeah. uh, like Altgeld, who followed years later, he said, yes, I've got to do it because it's right. That's a good comparison. I think both of these men deserve credit for a morality, which is very rare in American politics and sometimes even in American law. And his wife was saying, who didn't want him to do it because she knew their lives would be ruined, yes. uh, and uh, they were. Mm -hmm. she says, she's trying to understand who these anarchists are. Why do you want to hang men who, even though they may be wrong, want to improve the lot of people when every pulpit thundered the time is near at hand? And, and she poured it, so she felt the horror of the hysteria. Yes, she did. You know, at first she tried to talk her husband out of it, but then begin, she begins to see these anarchists in quasi-religious terms. She herself was a devout Catholic, and she begins to see them as Christ-like figures who were sacrificing their own lives to save the poor and the downtrodden, and therefore begins to support oh, her husband. Oh, point out now that Albert Parsons had escaped. Albert left yes, town. that's right. He came back voluntarily to stand yes. trial. So sure was he. Yes, uh, poor Captain Black, poor Captain Black. Parsons was in a safe place in Wisconsin. Uh, he had not come back. No one, the police had failed to find him. If he had not returned at this time, he would have been tried separately and in all probability would not have been hanged. He asked the advice of Captain Black, among others, and Black wanted him to come back. Parsons was a marvelous speaker. The fact that he should come back and surrender himself would win sympathy of the jury and, and of the public. So Black also was very confident that they'd be acquitted. Never yes, dreamed, he was. Yeah. Because no one knows who threw the bomb. That's right. Now we have something new in jurisprudence. Now, the Judge Gary said they advocated. Yes. So now they're going to be sentenced for what they said what they thought, yes. what they thought, yes. and not for what they did. For what they thought, what they wrote, what they spoke, 
all of which are the cherished liberties of all Americans. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court of the United States refused to hear this case on appeal on the grounds that it didn't involve any federal issues, where what was at stake, in fact, was free speech, free opinion, freedom of assembly, a meeting broken up by the police. But I'm trying to think now, because now it didn't matter how much perjury was offered, and it was obvious it was overwhelming. Yes, there was a lot the, of lying in the trial, witnesses. The prosecutions. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> witnesses were very, very funny, if it weren't yeah. But now... It didn't matter yeah. because these guys advocated it. That's right, advocacy. In fact, the prosecutor finally admitted that what was on trial here was not uh, these men for committing the actual act, but anarchy was on trial, he said, in his summing up. And in fact, the concept of anarchy and the right to speak and preach no government was on trial in Chicago. A member of the Citizens Committee told the wife of Black, counsel for the defense, your husband's clients are going to be hung. Not lawfully, she replied. Law, said George Emery of the Citizens Association, care nothing for the law. They'll be hanged whether it's lawful or not. <laughs> Stay, she says. Do you, you admit there's no law by which they could be convicted? Oh, yes, I'll admit that. But that won't affect the issue. They must be hung anyhow. Yes. In fact, the prosecutor himself said, Make the raids, arrest these men, and look up the law afterwards. That was the mood of Chicago in the aftermath of this bomb. Talking to Paul Average, and the book is The Haymarket Tragedy, and there's obviously more to come. The speeches of the men who were to be hanged and, or sent up, and entering the verdict, public reaction, a Governor Oglesby, and a chance, and finally, a Governor John Peter Allgeld. After this message, we resume. So resuming with the Haymarket tragedy and Paul Average, now they were found not much of a debate in the jury room, no. I take it. It took just a couple of found. hours. The jury. So what is it now? Five would it be? No, what would happen was that uh, of the eight defendants, seven were convicted of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. The eighth was convicted of murder and sentenced to 15 years. There was practically no evidence of any kind after uh, against Oscar Niebe, who was the eighth. And that was the eighth. Yes. And so now we have the world. Now we have Chicago and the world. Yes. And now the pleas for clemency. Yes, the whole amnesty the trial movement. Framed. The whole right. amnesty. There was an enormous movement throughout the country which extended not beyond the ocean to Europe. In every capital there were demonstrations and protests. The workers, whether they were anarchists or socialists or nothing, and no political affiliation, felt threatened by this railroading form of justice, this kangaroo court, so that there were large-scale demonstrations. Uh, the Knights of Labor, uh, except for its leader, Terence Powderly, who hated the anarchists, defended, in many cases, defended these anarchists and Samuel called for a new too. trial. Gompers of the AFL, American Federation of Labor, not only did he defend and, uh, and wrote a letter to the governor, but went to Springfield, Illinois, to visit the governor's mansion, pleading the cause of these men. And now we come also to the rest of the world. William Dean Howells, who at the time may have been America's leading novelist. Yes, he was. He devoted almost his entire days and nights to it. Yes, he, he wrote eloquently on behalf of these men and also saw the injustice of the trial. He was almost alone among the first-rate writers in America to do this. Many of the others turned I'm going to ask you, one thing no. mystifies me. Mm -hmm. I didn't find the name of Mark Twain. No, Twain oh. never entered into this entire case. I, in fact, it's interesting you mentioned Twain because I looked through his writings. Because I was looking for Twain because yeah. Twain was magnificent. He was a social critic and an, yeah. an ironist, but he, he seldom took stands on major social or political issues of the day, and here's one of the cases where he did not. 
Uh, but, later on, perhaps, in the 1890s and turn of the century, he would be more outspoken. But Howells says, I, I can't sleep. He was eloquent yes, in his comments. he says it all. And he devoted... But then there was letters uh, asking for clemency from Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, Annie Besant, the Theosophist, yes. William Morris, of course. Oh, yes, certainly William Morris. And so... And Peter Kropotkin, who was an anarchist himself. But these were all... And there was another lawyer added for the defense, for the appeal. Yes. Abraham Lincoln's one time Leonard law partner. Sweat, his name was, and he was a very able addition to the appeal. He, as you say, was Abraham Lincoln's law partner 20, 30 years before. And we have to mention someone else, of course, a key figure in Chicago journalistic history, Henry Demarest Lloyd. Yes, Demarest Lloyd, who was a financial columnist for the Chicago Tribune and a man of very high ideals. And, and the son-in-law of one of the owners of yes, the trip. Yes, William Bross, who sacrificed, I may add, Lloyd did his inheritance because his father-in-law became so incensed that his son-in-law should take up the cudgels on behalf of anarchists that he disinherited him of $3 million or something of that sort. Well, Lloyd worked day and night. Day and night. Henry Demarest Lloyd. Yes, yes. There was yet another Chicagoan. I wonder if anybody knows the name of William McIntyre Salter these days. He was the head of the Chicago Ethical Culture Society. He was the third prominent figure to come to the defense of these anarchists because of the nature of their trial, the travesty of the trial. And now... There was a new governor. There was a governor whose name was Oglesby, who was an ex-abolitionist. Yes, an abolitionist. Isn't that interesting? He was. But now we come to Oglesby. Oglesby admitted that under this interpretation of the law, that is, trying men for their ideas, what would have happened to us, the abolitionists? He said, we would have been hanged just as readily as these men. So Oglesby was not without sympathy for the free speech issue involved here. And Oglesby was called upon to pardon these men before the hanging could take place. And in fact, he did. Two of the men, uh, Samuel Field, the Englishman, and Michael Schwab, one of the German defendants, and commuted, not, didn't pardon he didn't them. Pardon but, them but, sorry, pardon. he commuted their sentences uh, to life imprisonment so that we have one man sentenced to 15 years, that's Niebe, and two others now commuted to life imprisonment, Michael Schwab and Samuel Fielden. And uh, the fifth one, this time, the fifth one to be hanged, Louis Ling, yes. exploded himself. Yeah, the I day mean, before the hanging. In prison. The hanging was scheduled for November 11th, 1887. On November 10th, an explosion occurred in the cell of Louis Ling. He had taken, someone had smuggled to him a dynamite cigar, which he smoked and blew part of his head off, and he died a few hours later, cheating the hangman. That was his object, by the way. So this is all now there are thousands scores of thousands of petitions and letters yes and of, for clemency yes you can go to springfield and you see them in fact one newspaper said if you stretch these petitions end to end they'd, they'd run about 50 miles this or something is an, like. on oglesby's desk that's right and mm -hmm. but henry george the single tackle he betrayed them oh because he had yeah. run for mayor, and now he became politically ambitious. Well, that's right. He had run for mayor and almost been successful of New York City, and then he had ambition to become an official in New York State government. So he decided it was politic to turn against these men. He was denounced by William Morris, incidentally, in England as Henry George Traitor, in big capital letters. Traitor to the working class, that is. Traitor I'm, to the people. I'm thinking of all the people who were writing. There was a guy named... A leading orator of the time, the great orator, yes. George Francis Train. Yes. And he was denounced or kidded or ridiculed as a crank. Yeah. And so one of the defendants, one of the guys who's going to be hanged, Adolf yeah. Fisher, writes a letter to Train. 
I think this is worth reading. He says, Citizen Train, I thank you for the basket of fruit you were kind enough to send. On all the guys in prison got fruit from John Brown Jr. too. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. And Eleanor Marx, the daughter of Karl yeah, Marx, visited them in a, prison. Yeah, thank you for the fruit. I noticed daily papers refer to you, Train, as the champion crank. Don't mind that. He says, what is a crank anyway? As much as I know, there's no specific definition of the word. But I do know all the men who are in advance of their age go under the category crank. Socrates, Christ, John Huss, Luther, Galileo, Rousseau, Paine, he rattles off the list, Jefferson, Franklin, Wendell Phillips, and last but not least, old John Brown, and many others more or less known apostles of progress have been considered cranks by their contemporaries because they held ideas which were contrary to and in advance of the customary social, political, religious, or scientific arrangements of things. But for these cranks, civilization would be in its infancy yet. Therefore, long live the cranks. <laughs> With hearty greetings, sir, I subscribe myself Adolf Fisher. Yes, a I wonderful like letter, isn't it? So do I. So yes. this is what's happening. Yes, it now, is. Now, Oglesby, a fairly decent man. Yes, not a bad fellow at all. But not particularly... He was a man who didn't have the courage to go all the way with this. Uh, so he says he cannot commute the sentences. Yes, he did not commute any of the other sentences. Now, there was something not even else. of Parsons. Parsons, who had surrendered himself from a place of hiding. Everyone thought at least Parsons would be spared, but he wasn't. Uh, Parsons would not write a letter appealing to the governor because he felt that if he were spared, then the others would definitely be hanged. The only chance the others had was if he stuck with them. Yeah. Didn't he say, or Spees, each of them said, hang me and let it go at that? Yes, several of them said yeah. this. Spees was the first yeah. to say it. And then Niebe, who was, yeah. wasn't even sentenced to hanging yeah. when he spoke up yeah. in court, said, hang me. Now, something interesting to hear about the press. Now, the climate was altering slightly. Right, it was. It was no longer the hang em thing. Now, there was the uh, amnesty was taken, or clemency, I should say, was taken seriously by some. Now, there was a journalist... Uh, great reputation editor, Melville Stone. Yes. He edited the Chicago Daily News. Yes, he was one of Who those... was as hysterical as the rest in the beginning, but That's then right. something happened to him. Yes, I don't know exactly what happened to him, but the mood did shift. Once men are about to be hanged, uh, this leads people to concentrate their thoughts very well. And Stone probably began to feel some remorse. He probably felt this was bad for the city and bad for the country and felt that it wasn't necessary to hang these men, that a prison sentence would be good enough. He pleaded with Albert Parsons, he says, I'll do something in favor of clemency if you, if you would only write a letter that would have been, I suppose, for Parsons' demeaning. Yes, it would have been. Begging for his life. Parsons he, said, give me I'm, liberty or give me death. He's, I, he's I'm innocent. Yeah. Yes. Now there was something else. We have to come to this, and it involves Marshall Field the first. Lyman Gage was a banker, a very distinguished banker, who wanted clemency. And there was a gathering of businessmen. You point this out. I've heard this now several times. And it was Marshall Field who finally put the noose around their oh, neck. Yes, yes. Under no circumstances, clumsy. And that swung the meeting. There was a possibility that there was a strong men. possibility that August Spees and Albert Parsons would have also had their sentences commuted by the governor. But Field let it be known very clearly that he was against this. And very few businessmen in Chicago would go against Field, as one of them said. It was terribly mortifying to me, he said Lyman mm -hmm. Gage who was of the First National Bank. And he was, the meeting broke up. None cared to take issue with Marshall Field. That's right. 
And so we, we have to go back to history. We have to, we have to, this is what history is about. And not to have, uh, you know, something whitewashed. Or anything. No. So now they're going to be hanged. And I think this, to me, is one of the moving parts of all. Parsons, the fiery anarchist, uh, Confederate war soldier, apparently hot orator, what song did he sing on the eve of his being hanged? Mm. You would think he's going to sing some militant mm -hmm, labor song. You? <laughs> or a militant social. He sang... Annie Laurie. Yes. And he had a high tenor voice. A beautiful tenor Suppose voice. Suppose we yeah. hear Deller doing it and just get the feeling. That was Albert Parsons singing that song. Mm -hmm. uh, Annie Laurie. Yes. Now we come, there was the hanging. Yes, I would lay me doon and dee, you yeah. see. He was about to be hanged. And yeah. And uh, it was, the hanging didn't work too well. I mean, uh, they, they died of strangulation. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. They, they were hanging the there four. for... Parsons, yes. Spees... Engel, Fisher. and Fisher. Yes. And now the aftermath. Mm -hmm. uh, there was jubilation, generally speaking. There was jubilation among the majority and the deepest remorse among those who sympathized or those who felt that justice had not been done. There's and a combination this, of emotions in yeah, Chicago. At this time, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, had uh, his say. He let's yes. do it. He wanted to hang him way back. He wanted to shoot him. He hit his boys... His bully boys said, we'll, we'll, we can shoot him. We'll aim him. That's we'll right. shoot him down. He had his cowboys in the Badlands of Dakota Territory, mm -hmm. just as later on the Spanish-American War. Uh, Roosevelt has a reputation of being one of the great presidents. His, his uh, face is on Mount Rushmore, but the man had a sense of vigilante justice about him. He hated radicals, especially anarchists, and this comes through during the Haymarket case. He wanted to come down here and shoot the whole bunch of them. So there was this, and Judge Gary... Yes was honored by the Chicago Bar Association. That's right. So now we come to a new governor, John Peter Altgeld, yes. known as a liberal and now. So the interesting thing about Altgeld is that he's something of an enigma, remains even now something of an enigma. He never spoke out for clemency. He was not part of the clemency movement or the amnesty movement. He never signed a petition to stop these men from being hanged. But now that he was in a position to do something, uh, he was going to act, although even now he, he takes his time about it. He's a man who's fair-minded but thorough, and he looks into the entire record, the trial, and comes to the conclusion that these men were hanged unjustly. Let's hold John Peter Altgeld's paper, which some call one of the most powerful papers ever yeah. written any political mm -hmm. figure in American history. That's right. In a moment after this message, we're talking to Paul Average, and his book is The Haymarket Tragedy. We'll last sequence coming up. So now we come to Governor Altgeld. Is how many years after the Almost trial? Almost seven years have gone by now it's since 90, the hanging. It's 93. 93, six and a half years. And they're waiting for the decision by Governor Altgeld. The papers, visitors, cables, wires, Clarence Darrow, among others, That's Captain right. Black again. Yes. Destroyed Captain Black now. And now Altgeld says to his associate. Well, he so, says that... Uh, the judge acted with malicious ferocity in this case. He used those words used the in words. his message. Oh, he condemned Gary he condemned and Gary's Gary presence thoroughly. Th yes, thoroughly. And uh, the jury and the nature of the trial. And not only did he pardon the three survivors who were in prison, but he exonerated the other five of any wrongdoing. 
It took guts to do that, by the now, way. Now, the question is, this is a debate, as did yeah. this ruin Altgeld's career or didn't it? Well, he wasn't re-elected for a second term as governor, so in that sense, it didn't help his career. He remained, on the other hand, a, a very important moral force within the Democratic Party, and he commanded respect. Even John F. Kennedy, much later on, wrote a book called Profiles in Courage, in which he has a whole chapter on Altgeld. Of course, the great book on yeah. him is by Harry Barnard. Oh, yes. Ego that's, Forgotten. That's, that's the book. And, of course, the poem by Vachel Lindsay. Right. Ego Forgotten. Yes, yes. that's right. So now, the attack on Altgeld was almost as violent as the attack on the anarchists mm-hmm. seven years before. And it was reminiscent of the attack on the anarchists. It was almost yeah. as if Altgeld himself yeah. were an anarchist. Yeah. They see him now as a German, whereas he was three yeah. months old when he came to But he's, I'm doing it because it's right. It's, it's right. what Captain Black said. Exactly what Captain... And what William Dean Howell oh, said yeah. when he came to their defense. And so perhaps, uh, before we talk about the legacy of Haymarket, yeah. how it altered everything, really, the women. There's Lucy Parsons. That's right. There are several important women in this case. But Lucy Parsons. She was the most important. Uh, here is a woman who may very well have been born in slavery as a slave, who was part black and perhaps part Mexican, Chicano, we would say, uh, a working woman, a radical, an anarchist, a feminist, who spoke almost as beautifully as her husband, an eloquent speaker, denounced as viciously and violently in the press as was her husband, who tried to save him and his comrades from being hanged, who went back and forth across the country making speeches, selling literature, pamphlets, uh, appealing to people to contribute funds to the amnesty movement uh, with great courage. Did this for years and years. years she lived and to even be afterwards. Yes, she after lived to be this 90? Case. No. She lived to be 90. She died in 1942, actually. You know, I heard her talk. Tell me about that. That would be interesting. At Bughouse Square here in Chicago. Old Lucy Parr, old woman. And Lucy, they passed the hat around. Yes. She wore a flower hat. The hat was passed around. And the guys, maybe a couple of hundred guys. This is a, and summer days on soapbox, three boxes at the same time, guys, all sorts of talking. <laughs> uh-huh. And there was Lucy Parsons. Yeah. And Wynne Strachey, friend of mine, Wynne, at Lucy's funeral, later, was 42, you say? Yes, was. Wynne sang at her funeral at Waldheim Cemetery. He sang Annie Laurie. Yes. And... So Lucy Parsons is one. Nina Van Zant, a society woman who fell in love with Spees and married yeah, him. That's right. While now he was she, in prison, she attended she, the trial. Now, so what happened to her? She was a Vassar graduate uh, whose father was a, ma- a manufacturer of pharmaceuticals. She went to the trial, fell in love with Spees. Spees married her in his prison cell or by proxy. And she afterwards also, her life was crushed just as Lucy Parsons' life was crushed. And she ended up with a dozen animals in a small apartment, yeah. wearing raggedy clothing yeah. and tennis sneakers. So these two old women lived yeah. in our time. They did. I never saw Nina Van Zandt. She Might died without in... knowing. These two yes, battered, right. poor, raggedy, almost be called bag ladies. Today. Almost. That's a very good yeah. comparison. Yes, I think you might we're call We're carrying them. history with them. Yes. And, and of course, yeah, a heroism with them. Yes, and there are several other militant women in the case itself. That is, among the anarchists in Chicago, there are quite a number of women. Uh, the women's movement was part of the anarchist movement and the socialist movement in the late 19th century. So we have to ask the legacy. What is the legacy of the Haymarket case? In two years will be its 100th anniversary. That's true. Uh, the first part of the legacy that I could see is that uh, the Haymarket affair in inspired a fear of anarchism and the equation of anarchism with bomb throwing. 
Uh, it also led to a series of nativistic reactions against radicalism and against the labor movement in general. The whole labor movement, whether anarchist or not, was tainted by this bomb. The bomb throw was never discovered. Secondly, for a period, the anarchist movement waned in Chicago. It reached its zenith just on the eve of this bomb. There were several thousand anarchists in Chicago. But after the bomb was thrown, uh, the anarchist movement, it didn't disappear, but it, it shrank for a time and then had a rejuvenation at the turn of the century with a new wave of immigrants from Italy, Jewish immigrants, Russians. Still another was that it demonstrated that most Americans could not see violence and revolution as a solution to social questions and social problems, and that it turned the labor movement in a direction of reformism, gave strength to organizations like Samuel Gompers's American Federation of Labor. But it also inspired the militants. The industrial workers of the world who were founded here in Chicago in 1905 took their initial inspiration from the Haymarket. Some of the most famous radicals, orators, militants like Emma Goldman were converted to anarchism as young people in the midst of this trial and especially after the hanging. Big Bill Haywood. Big Bill Haywood writes about it in his memoirs and how he became a militant. But I suppose if I were to leave with one thought on reading your book is that how easy it is for hysteria, the flames of it to be fanned, how easy it is to become know-nothing indeed an act. Yeah, how that, that's what history is all about. It is. Why something happened, how it happened, and how the public was swayed. Fear, of course. Fear, we come back fear. to fear. Driven into a fear of fear. Them. You could think again can of a generation later, Sacco and Vanzetti. Again, two immigrant anarchists after a tainted trial Sacco executed. Sacco and Vanzetti, at this very moment as we're talking, a vigilantism of a sort that happened in a subway in New York is cheered. Yes. So you that's see right. what fear can do. We yeah. come to that again. And what history does, of course, is to show us why something happened, and perhaps a lesson for today. The last sentence of your book, no one who was touched by it, the Haymarket tragedy, can remain the same. It was, as contemporaries noted, the great social drama of the era. The London freedom went even further. Take all history, search all its pages, you'll find nothing like what we saw that time in America. And what better way to end than perhaps with Deller again, say, bringing forth the memory of Parsons' voice at Annie Laurie. Thank you very much. The book is The Haymarket Tragedy, my guest, Paul Average, Princeton University Press Publishers.